of Acts, for those of you who might not have been around over the last few weeks. Uh, So we've spent the last few weeks looking at the stories of different people in the early church and how they've contributed to the spreading of Christianity in Acts. So last week we spoke about Peter, who sat with a Roman centurion called Cornelius and spoke to him about Jesus before baptizing him and his family, in spite of the fact that it caused scorn from his fellow believers who didn't like that Peter was speaking to Gentiles and Romans about Jesus. That was quite a controversial thing to do in in Peter's time. Uh, The week before that, we talked about Saul, who we might know better as the Apostle Paul, who had his Damascus Road moment when he met God. And Ananias was called to where Saul was to uh, tell him about Jesus. And Matt Hosier made the point that Saul's conversion was more of a straight street conversion than a Damascus Road conversion because it was at a house on Straight Street that uh, Saul met Ananias. Ananias shared the gospel with Saul and Saul became a Christian. Saul's conversion is one of the most significant in the Bible because Saul then becomes the Apostle Paul whose ministry changed not just Jerusalem or the surrounding area but the whole of history. And Saul's important in this morning's passage too, because Saul, a staunch Jew who literally went from city to city imprisoning and killing Christians for daring to talk about Jesus, had had an experience with Jesus that was so profound that he went from Christian killer to chief evangelist in one fell swoop. And we'll learn a little bit more about that later. The week before that, Matt Painter came and told us about Philip, who again was a good man, and he spoke to an Ethiopian eunuch who was so desperate to meet with God that he traveled thousands of miles in anticipation of finding him in search of answers. Philip preached the gospel to the Ethiopian and baptized him and sent him joyfully on his way. And before all that, we spoke about Stephen, who uh, Emma very kindly read the beginning of the story about Stephen this morning. He's a deacon in the church, like the guys we've just appointed, and the Bible calls him a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And as we appointed deacons here this morning, here we find a good example for them to follow in Stephen, a good godly man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, somebody who stirred up the early church, and you're about to see why. Because that's where our story in Acts 11 starts this morning as well, with Stephen. So if you remember from uh, Acts 6 and Acts 7, Stephen ministered among God's people, performing signs and wonders, praying for people. He served the early church incredibly well, much like we've been served this morning by Matt and Sarah and others on coffee. He was like the first one there, doing all the serving, working hard for the people of God. Now, a group of men rose up against Stephen, spreading lies about him that resulted in him being brought to the judges of the time, where he was condemned to a brutal death by stoning. It's exciting for our deacons that we've just appointed, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Hopefully that won't be their fate. I'm sure it won't. You'll be fine. Uh, We heard Stephen's story, uh, and we heard how in that moment, totally unjust though it was, it was a catalyst for the spreading of the gospel. You see, Stephen was obedient even to the point of death. He was stoned to death. Such was his faith that he would not waver even in the face of death. We're told the church was persecuted and quickly scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So now we're going to fast forward to this morning's passage where we pick up the story. And we find Stephen mentioned again. And it turns out the legacy of his death has caused something quite remarkable to happen. So we're reading in Acts 11 from verse 19 to the end on page 1105 in your Bibles. Okay, 1105. And Mrs. Hobby is going to come and do the honors for us again. Yeah. 
Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians, first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders of Barnabas and Saul. Thank you so much. So because of Stephen's death, the early church in Jerusalem has spread, and now they were preaching messages as far as they went. And you can see there's a map up the top here. You can see Jerusalem marked, and there's Antioch at the top near Syria. And the early Christians continued to spread out from Israel into modern-day Lebanon. If you use the second map here, this is Google Maps, you see. We're all used to this a little bit more. So there they go from Jerusalem through modern-day Lebanon, then across the water to Cyprus, which is the big bitter water, the island in the middle there, up, uh, and up as far north as modern-day Turkey, where we find Antioch, which is almost 400 miles from Jerusalem, although it's actually a little bit longer by car. Uh, which they didn't have the luxury of. But it's like uh, as far as here to the Scottish border, okay? From here where we're standing this morning to Hadrian's Wall is about 376 miles. So 400 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch is where, they, is where, they'd, uh, is where they'd spread out from following the, the death of Stephen and the persecution of the church. And it's, I think it's quite hard to think about the impact that Stephen's life and death had. We haven't really got a modern-day equivalent, have we? I suppose the, the nearest thing I could think would be the technological revolution that we've gone through recently. Um, if you think about things like Facebook that started off in a Stanford University bedroom uh, in 2005 and then spread out through other universities and then spread out to only people under 25 and then spread out further. And I was reading, I was watching a, a TV program yesterday uh, that said they've now got Facebook in Myanmar and in some of the Rohingya camps in Bangladesh. It's, it's spread out so wide, Facebook, that it's literally gone around the world. Uh, another example might be from a man who actually grew up and lived in Coal Hill for a little while. He worked in a place called Plessis in Poole. He's a homegrown lad. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Tim Berners-Lee is the man. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee is the inventor of the World Wide Web, the www dot that you put in front of your, uh, in front of your uh, web pages. Now, he wasn't the inventor of the internet, but he was the guy that was able to make it simple for everybody to have the internet at their fingertips. And nowadays, there's scarcely one of us in the room who hasn't got a device even in their own pockets 
by which we can go and use the www dot that Tim Berners-Lee first invented. Something that started very small ends up going around the world. And that's sort of what happened with Stephen here. It was a big catalyst. Stephen's death was a catalyst for the early church. Stephen had caused the early church to scatter. His persecution was further fueled for the spreading of the gospel. One man's faith was about to start a global phenomenon that would change culture and go around the world. So those who scatter after Stephen's death uh, get as far as Antioch, which was right at the top of our map there, the ruins of which sit in a city uh, now called uh, Antakya in southern Turkey, but then it would have sat as a part of Syria. It was a prominent city in the Roman Empire, okay, mainly due to its location. It housed elements of the Silk Road, and the Silk Road is this really famous trail that went right from China, right the way through India, and then up through the Middle East and into Europe. Um, it was incredibly, incredibly well-known. It had over half a million people living there, way more than were living in Jerusalem at the time, and it was second only to Rome and Alexandria as the Roman Empire's most important city. Not only would it have housed Greeks and Romans and Syrians and those that were around, but it would have housed Jews, it would have housed Egyptians, it would have housed people from India, people from China, people from Africa. This was a truly multicultural city, perhaps the first truly multicultural city in that society. Think of it a little bit like London today. You walk around London and you see people from the four corners of the earth all coming together, speaking different languages. Uh, Manchester is another example. Emma and I lived in Manchester for six six years, and when we were there, we lived in an area called Rushholm, and as uh, white English-speaking Christians, we were the significant minority. English wasn't even the first language of the area that we lived in, in Manchester, and it's a little bit like that. It would have been this big multicultural city that they lived in. So this is a major city in the Roman Empire, and it was an ideal place to make your way to, an ideal place to talk about Jesus, because it was going right up that Silk Road, and that's exactly what the people did. The writer of Acts, Luke, was also from Antioch. So he's got a vested interest in telling us this story about the church in Antioch because that's where he was from. So the first thing that we see from our story this morning is that they preached about Jesus and many people were saved. Okay, they preached about Jesus and many people were saved. And my first question when I was doing the prep was, why not here too? The church in Antioch, as they were going about preaching the word of God, saw many people saved. The early church was incredibly countercultural. They show up in Antioch, a city full of Gentiles or non-Jews, and they immediately start talking to them about a God who loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them. Previously, this religion was only for God's chosen people. It was, uh, it was only for, for Jews, but now this religion's open to all. And this group were preaching to all and seeing them saved in big numbers. They were preaching to, to Jews, if you know... In your Bibles, they use the word Greeks also. So they were preaching to Jews, but they were also, uh, they weren't a particular bunch. They weren't fussy who they preached the word of God to. If they came across somebody that needed to know Jesus, hey, guess what? They were going to get to know Jesus because they were preaching. If you were willing to listen, they were willing to speak. We heard last week how Peter's preaching to the Roman centurion Cornelius was met with scorn by the other believers. But the tides were changing. Those who'd previously only been preaching to Jews were starting to wake up to the fact that this gospel is for all, no matter your history or heritage or location or circumstance. The change they'd seen in Cornelius was opening up to the fact that God was here to save all. This wasn't just a geographical spreading of the gospel as they moved north, but a cultural one as well, okay? 
the gospel was moving culturally. This church was a perfect example of multiculturalism. Jews and Gentiles together worshipping Jesus. They were radical in preaching to all people and seeing all people saved, baptised and added to the church. We're looking at the first international church where people of all kinds were coming together. Remember I said Antioch was a multicultural place. From the context of the verses, we can assume that the gospel was being preached to all these people that were coming through on this silk road, regardless of their backgrounds. And the church was a full expression of Antioch's multiculturalism. Okay. Now, how did they know they were doing the right thing when they're preaching to Jew and Gentile and uh, people from Africa and people from Syria and people from China and people from... How did they know that they were doing the right thing? Well, the passage tells us the Lord's hand was with them. God's plan was being enacted through his people. God was loving it, basically. This was the work of God and man together. The Lord's hand was with them. This wasn't just a few men with a good idea, but a God-ordained spread of the gospel around the world, something that's continuing even today, okay? The first question I want to ask is, do you believe that God's hand is with you when you talk about him? Do you believe that God's hand works through people like us? Because it does, it's true. I think often in this culture, there's a a fallacy that it's harder for us, that when we go about preaching the gospel or try to talk about God at work, we're met with opposition because, you know, people will tell you, well, the culture's changed and, you know, that's cool for you if that's what you want to believe, but it's not what I want to believe. But as long as we all believe what we want to believe, then that's cool. And we we can lull ourselves into thinking that preaching the gospel nowadays is harder than it was in the Bible. We can read these Bible stories and think, oh, well, it's all right for these guys, you know. I mean, some of them, some of them met Jesus face to face. Some of them, you know, knew firsthand what it was like to, to be a Christian. It must, it must surely be easier for them. But Stephen was literally stoned. He, he was killed for preaching the message. It's not harder for us than it was for them. Actually, in our context, in our culture, in Paul, in in Dorset. We're not being killed for what we believe. We're not being killed for going and preaching the word to the people around us. And actually, when I was prepping, this was something that that was really sobering for me, actually. These guys were so passionate about Jesus that they were preaching wherever they went. They'd seen a pillar in the church, someone like Stephen, stoned to death. Now, that would put me off. Would it not put you off? If somebody among us here was literally killed for preaching the gospel, I think we'd turn up on Sunday and be a little bit more like, ooh, Actually, maybe you can preach this morning. I'm not actually feeling, maybe my arms do hurt a bit. I might sit down. You know, you'd be a little bit more nervous, wouldn't you, if you knew people were literally being killed for preaching the gospel. The reality for us is it's easier for us to go and preach the gospel. We're not being persecuted for doing so. It's a fallacy that it's harder for us than it was. So I'm heartened, actually, because a big part of the message here is that these people were nothing more than obedient Christians taking Jesus' word seriously and proclaiming the gospel wherever they went. God's call to them is the same call to us. There's some Bible verses I'm going to put up behind us. Let's read them together. Matthew 28, it's often called the Great Commission. In verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. That commission that Jesus gave to the disciples was being enacted through the early church. Who would have heard these words? But those words that were for them in that moment are for us this morning as well. 
We're to go preaching the gospel, seeing people saved, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And what does Jesus say? Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus didn't say, and surely I am with you until you get to Antioch and then you're on your own. To the very ends of the age. We're still living under the fullness of this promise this morning. Jesus is with us when we go and preach the gospel. Isn't that amazing news? Even earlier in Acts, in Acts 1, it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we believe in a God who has sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. Often we pray on a Sunday morning, Holy Spirit, would you be with us this morning? Lord, we want to feel your power this morning. We know that the Holy Spirit works through people like you and me. And we're given that same commission to go and preach to the very ends of the earth, to Poole, to Bournemouth, to Hampshire next door, to the UK and further afield. And that's why I was really heartened reading this story. And that's why I was so determined to come and preach this morning, no matter what was going on. Because that same spirit who caused men and women of the fledgling Antioch church to rise up is calling us too. We can see a mighty church in Paul. And I believe this. We can see a mighty church in Paul if we take Jesus' charge seriously and act with obedience and faith and with the Holy Spirit. We, as Christians, are marked out by his Holy Spirit. We know we have God's hand with us as we go. This morning's passage should cause an expectation in us. To, it should cause an expectation to rise as we read. As we read examples of God pouring out on his early church. As we understand that his hand is on our church too this morning. That same charge is for us this morning. It should excite us to want to see the same sort of thing happening in Paul. Why shouldn't it? Are you excited for that? Do you want that? I mean, I really want that. I love coming here every morning, every Sunday morning, and seeing you guys and being family together, and I'm so grateful for all of you, but I would love to have the problem of running out of chairs. I'd love to turn up on a Sunday morning and not know quite so many faces as I do now, as people come into this church building to hear about Jesus and get saved and added to this church. That's what we want to see, isn't it? Yeah. So the church in Antioch is going about preaching the word of God and seeing people saved, and the way I read it, the guys who are preaching there, as this church continues to grow and grow, think, hold on a minute, we might need some help here. It's all getting a bit big and out of hand, right? So they call for Barnabas, for strengthening. And Barnabas comes up from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. So what happens when word reaches Jerusalem? Remember, the church in Jerusalem initially wasn't best pleased when Peter was going around preaching to Roman centurions. So how would they hear about news from Antioch, that the church in Antioch was now preaching to all sorts of people and seeing them saved and added to the church. What would they make of this group of radicals preaching to anybody they could get their hands on? Well, Jerusalem sent Barnabas, and Barnabas loved what he saw. Barnabas's endorsement of the church was based on evidence of what he saw. Imagine going into a church and seeing this level of conversion taking place. You'd rightly have to conclude that God was at work, wouldn't you? If you turned up and people were pouring through the church doors on a Sunday morning to come and hear the gospel and getting saved and added to the church, you would think God is on this, wouldn't you? And that's what Barnabas saw. He saw lives being changed and his assessment of it was good. Now, when Emma and I lived in Manchester, there was this uh, really good guy who was in the church alongside us. His name was Dave Atkinson. 
And whenever he heard about another church that was, that was doing good or seeing, uh, seeing good things happen uh, from God, he'd fill a carload of people up and he'd take them down there. And I remember him coming up to me one Sunday morning at church and he said, have you heard about the church in Dudley? Now, the church in Dudley was experiencing something of a, a revolution in seeing people healed. I don't know if you remember, if you've been in, in Christian circles for long enough, you might remember a, a thing that they called the Lakeland Revival that started in, in Florida. Well, some of these church leaders from Dudley went across to the Lakeland Revival, and they came back, and they started uh, praying for people in the same way that they saw uh, people being prayed for in Lakeland. And they started seeing people healed. And they were having nightly meetings where people were coming off the streets and seeing people healed. So we thought, well, that's, you know, isn't that cool? That's a cool thing. But my friend Dave Att was like, come on, Nat, we're getting in the car. We're going to Dudley. We're going to go and see it for ourselves. So out go my Sunday afternoon, uh, Sunday lunch plans. In the car we go, and we drive down from Manchester to Birmingham, and we see it firsthand. And we actually did see people being healed there as, as we were in, in and amongst them in the church. And it was amazing. And um, I'm not going to focus on it. If you want to know a little bit more about that and some of my thoughts and experiences, then then please do come and find me. They were calling it a revival at the time. Personally, I didn't see many people who didn't know Jesus becoming Christians, so I wouldn't use that term, but they certainly were seeing God's hand moving to heal many, many people as they met night after night, which was an amazing thing to see. And guess what? We were encouraged. On the car back up, we thought, man, wouldn't it be good if we started praying for people and seeing people healed? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be such an amazing thing? So we did. Like, we didn't feel some big hand from the sky coming and, I can't point properly, but coming and pointing, saying, okay, you guys that have been to the church now, you need to go and heal people. But we were so encouraged by what we saw that we said, right, come on, from now on, we're going to be bolder in, in praying and seeing people healed. And guess what? We prayed for more people and more people got healed. Not everybody got healed, but some people got healed because we believed that God's power was with us and we prayed for healing and we saw it happen. And it's amazing what happens when you go and see God's work taking place. We were so encouraged. So Barnabas saw what was going on and he immediately rolled up his sleeves and got involved and he saw people saved. He brought people to the church and they were saved too. When was the last time you brought somebody to church? See, Barnabas did that. He, he got involved, got stuck in, brought somebody to church and there they are getting saved and added to the church as well. So Barnabas came rolled up his sleeves, got stuck in, and the work was so big that he went and got Saul so that Saul could come and help as well. The church was growing at such a rate that Barnabas went and got Saul to come and help too. Saul was in a town in, uh, called Tarsus, which was his hometown. Um, since his life was threatened preaching the gospel, he uh, hot-tailed it out of Jerusalem and was, was taking refuge in Tarsus, and that's where Barnabas found Saul. And I think that there's a big element of strategy in Barnabas' decision here, isn't there? Saul, now called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, was being called into action in a hotbed of Gentile evangelism. That strikes of strategy to me. If I was Barnabas, I'd think, hey, we need this guy, Saul, the guy who's going to come and preach to Gentiles. He's going to come and see many more people added to this church as well. This is an incredibly significant moment and not a sentence to skip past because without skipping too head, uh, far ahead of our Acts preaching series, it's from Antioch that Saul soon to be known as the Apostle Paul, launches his first mission that ends up seeing the church explode around the world. It's in the proving ground of Antioch that Paul sees what God's church should look like as he expands God's church throughout the region. Saul and Barnabas stay for a whole year and preach the gospel. The church is growing. Uh, it's, it's not just growing in numbers, but growing in maturity as well. 
The wording here is that they taught a great number of people. This goes beyond conversion now and into discipleship. They're teaching people uh, about the, the scripture. They're helping to bring them through into maturity. One commentator, uh, a guy who knows his Bible incredibly well, his name's John Stott, he says this about this passage. They must have taught about Christ, making sure that the converts knew both facts and the significance of his life, death, resurrection, exaltation, spirit gift, present right, and future coming. The word Christ must have constantly been on their lips. And we know that. Do you know why we know that? Because it was here that they were first called Christians. The passage tells us so. It was in Antioch that the, the, the word Christian was first coined. They were talking about Christ so much that they got a nickname for it. And actually, it probably wasn't the nicest nickname at first. Those Christians, always at it, you know. Uh, it, it, it was probably something that was used in jest, that was said as a, a marker of the, oh, these guys again, the Christians, here they are, always talking about Christ. Christ, 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 Christ. That's what they always talk about. They were causing a stir in Antioch, so much so that they got a name for it. But they were so passionate about Christ that they got a nickname about how much they spoke about him. Thousands of years later, the name's been adopted as a shorthand phrase for those who believe in Jesus. If, we're, if we believe that Jesus died to save our sins, if we call Jesus our saviour, we call ourselves Christians, don't we? You might call yourself a Christian if that's you. But do we live up to the mantle handed down by the Christians in Antioch? Is Christ on our lips to the extent that we deserve the label? Would somebody at work who didn't know you that well take one look at you and think, that guy must be a Christian? Speaking about Christ so much, he must be a Christian. It's incredibly challenging, isn't it, to see a group of people in a church that loved Jesus so much that they couldn't stop talking about him. I was personally challenged when preparing this because, honestly, hand on heart, I, 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 I don't spend every day of my life doing that. You know, when you've got work and deadlines and meetings and things and people and kids and school runs and everything else. Actually, sometimes uh, it, uh, I can forget to, to put Jesus' name first on my lips. You know, it's more about a to-do list that I've got to get through. I wonder how many of you kind of feel that way as well. That's why I was incredibly challenged reading this passage, reading about this church who just went and spoke about Christ wherever they went. So they were being supported by the church in Jerusalem who were sending people. So Barnabas went and got, got Saul and, and, and they, were, they were being supported by the, uh, by the other churches. But they were supporting other churches as well. Because this church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem continued to have strong links and people were continuing to visit. We're then told in the passage about a guy called Agabus who comes to visit. And he was from the church in Jerusalem as well. The links between the churches were stronger and support was being sent continuously from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch there. So why include an aside about Agabus's prophecy here? So we're learning about the early church in Antioch and all that they're up to. And all of a sudden there seems like there's a bit of a gear change in the story, doesn't there? We learn about this guy called Agabus who comes and gives a prophecy about famine. And then we're told in brackets that that prophecy ends up coming true. If we're talking about the amazing works of the church in Antioch, then why does this guy, Agabus, who's kind of barely a footnote in their story, make it into, into this passage? Well, it's here that we get another clue as to the health of this church. Because they heard God speak through Agabus, and they acted. Out of compassion, they sent gifts 
throughout Judea so the church would be blessed even in famine. And this part of the story is less about Agabus and more about how a church determined to do God's will acts when they hear God speak. They're moved to compassion to help those in need. The relationship between these churches was now becoming reciprocal. It wasn't just Jerusalem sending people to help in Antioch, but now the church in Antioch was sending people to help back and, f- and money and food to help with the famine as well. They gave generously, the passage says, each to their own ability to be able to gift brothers or Christians throughout Judea, even sending Barnabas and Saul back to Jerusalem as they went. And this should characterize the family of God, willing to give in response to need, being there for brothers and sisters in time of trouble. Giving generously was a mark of the early church, right from Acts 2, where we're told the church in Acts 2.42, it's the um, verse that's often uh, told to speak about uh, life groups or, or home groups, when they say that everybody was together and they gave as they had need, sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, is what it says in Acts 2. This church acted not just with their words, they weren't just talking about Jesus, but they were acting through deeds as well. With their money and their resource, they were pouring out to the benefit of their community, to the benefit of other churches that they were linked with. And so the church continues to mature. I'm going to get you to just turn over your Bibles to page 1107 and Acts 12, where we get a little bit more about the church in Antioch. So Acts 12, verse 25, says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission in Jerusalem, where they went to go and take uh, the, the gift from the church in Antioch, they returned from Jerusalem, taking John with them, and also Mark. They're bringing more resource back. Now the church in Antioch, in, at the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who'd been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So Barnabas and Saul come back. Way! Wouldn't have that been great? You've uh, sent this big resource off. Imagine the loss of having two heavyweights in the gospel of Barnabas and Saul and sending them away. That would have been a big loss. It's a little bit like here where we've had people like Aaron and Tash and Ian and Lindsay and we've sent them off. And you feel the loss of that, don't you, when they go? Oh, I wish they were still here. Weren't they so good to have among us? And you feel that loss. And that must have been what the church in Antioch felt as they sent Saul and Barnabas off. And here they go, coming back. They continue to invest in the church. And here we're told the names of those who are leading the church. And again, it's a picture of multiculturalism. We've got Barnabas, who was from Cyprus. Simeon, he was black and he was likely from Africa originally. Lucius, we're told, is from Cyrene. Manian was Palestinian and Saul was from Tarsus. They had different backgrounds, ethnicities, life experiences. But they all came together for God's glory as his church was built up. What a beautiful picture this is of how God's church comes together. This church was for everyone, Jew and Gentile. All were welcome in the kingdom of God. And the same is true for us here this morning as well. No matter your background, no matter what brought you here this morning, if you were dragged along by a friend or a family member, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then this same message that this church in Antioch was preaching is being preached this morning. And it's this, Jesus died to save you. 
no matter what you've done wrong, no matter your background, whether you're from Africa or India or China or Southampton or Manchester or London, God is calling you this morning and telling you that he sent his son to die for everything that you have ever done wrong. And there is absolutely nothing you've done to deserve this gift. It is God's grace poured out on you. He loves you so much that he's made a way for you to be with your father in heaven forever. And all you have to do is say, I believe it. I believe it. That's what was happening when people were saved and added to this church. The church was saying, Jesus died for you. Come and, and, come and live a life with Jesus. He loves you so much. Come and be with him. Come and be among us as family in this church. Come and learn more about Jesus. Come and grow in your faith. And one day we'll get to heaven and we'll all be able to celebrate forever, for eternity, what Jesus has done for us. If that's you, you can walk out of this church this morning as a Christian. And if you'd like to explore that more, then please come and talk to me at the end because I would love to tell you more about Jesus, more about this, this Christ that the church in Antioch was talking about and who we're talking about this morning. So, how do we respond to all this? We've got a church preaching the gospel, growing in number, growing in maturity, growing in significance, growing in generosity as they help the church in Jerusalem. What does the church in Antioch have to teach the church in Paul on Ashley Road? The church in Antioch didn't have an evangelism department. They all did it. This was an all-play activity. And there's a call for us to do the same. We're all called to go and preach the gospel where we go. If you'd call yourself a Christian, it means that Christ should be on your lips the same way it was in the Antioch church. We should be telling friends and neighbors and co-workers and family about Jesus. If you truly believe it, if you truly believe that, that Jesus can save you, then we should be telling people about it. We can't just leave it for the guys who are doing the belief course. We can't just leave it for Matt Painter and Matt Ashton to tell our friends and family about Jesus. Eventually, Matt Ashton's going to run out of co-workers, and then we'll all be in trouble. Actually, we need to, to continue to, to be preaching the gospel, all of us. It's an all-play activity. So with this belief course, why not set yourself a challenge to take a stack of flyers with you as you go this morning and try and get rid of them as you go through your week? Try and give them out. Tell people about Jesus. Share the gospel as you go. There's a serious point to this because the church in Antioch was hyper-inclusive. It didn't matter your background. It didn't matter where you're from. You could come and belong to this church. But there is an exclusive element to Christianity, and that's this. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. And that's what the church in Antioch were telling people and it's what we need to be telling people as well. Because there'll come a day whether you either believe or you don't. And that decision will inform your eternal destiny. So there should be an urgency about us when we talk about Jesus. These people need to know about Jesus. And why? Because one day Jesus will come again. And if they've not professed Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, then their eternal destination is going to be very different to ours. Now, reading through the account of the church in Antioch, I don't know about you, but I really did feel anticipation, excitement rise. Pre preparing this, I found myself stopping to reflect time and time again, God, I want this. I really want to see this happen in pool. 
Don't you want to see this happen too? To see our church grow, to see the gospel spread? In Acts 11, the church in Antioch is healthy, thriving, growing. It becomes a cornerstone of Christianity in the region. And I'd love to see the church in Paul get the same reputation for being the cornerstone of Christianity in Dorset. And the onus is on all of us to want this, to push towards it, to get excited about it, that we all get to play a part in God's great story, to tell people about Jesus, to give when we see need. The church in Antioch grew because God's hand was with them, but it also grew because they were doing what they were told to do, to go and make disciples of the earth. They were reading God's word and doing what it said. So here are some really practical things that you can do this week that will push us towards being the sort of church that will see Antioch levels of growth, okay? The first one is that belief course. Let's get people on it. Let's take those flyers. Take a big stack as you go and hand them out this week. Post them through your neighbor's letterbox. Give them to people that don't know about Jesus. The next one is to pray for people that we've sent. We've seen a lot of people from this church called to plant churches around the world. And it's amazing. And we shouldn't forget these people and keep them in our thoughts and keep them in our prayers and send them messages to encourage them and let them know that we're thinking about them. We've got Ian and Lindsay who have planted Glasgow Grace Church in Scotland. Send them a message and say, hey, we're praying for you. We're with you. Aaron and Tash now in a church in Abu Dhabi, exploring what church planting might look for them in a totally different part of the world. Mike and Hannah Gates were with us for a number of years and are now out in China. And they've joined a church in China and are exploring that. Send them a message. Say, hey, we're thinking of you, praying for you as you are on this adventure of faith. Ben and Lydia Green are off in Spain at the moment. They were with us for a number of years. Now a part of a church in Spain and thinking about what it might mean for them to plant in the future. And as painful as it is to see these people leave, we can rejoice that God's church is being built around the world by people who have been here in this community. And we can pray that God calls more of us, near and far, to build his global church as well. Now, the church in Antioch knew what it was like to send people. In Acts 13, we're then told that they send Saul and Barnabas again. The pain must have been felt by them as they sent people on. But that church continued to flourish, and we should pray that ours does too. Actually, Ian and Lindsay going is an incredible moment for us as we see them going to plant something new in Glasgow. But we should pray that our church continues to flourish as well as we continue to faithfully preach God's word and see this church grow. The other thing that you can do, and Matt brought it up in the news, is book onto the Advanced Conference. It's taking place next Saturday, and churches are going to come together from all over the UK and all around the world to come and be family together. The Antioch Church had an excellent relationship with other churches, specifically the church in Jerusalem, and we belong to a network of churches who are partnering together to see the gospel spread around the world. The Advanced Network has got churches in South Africa, the US, Thailand, Hong Kong, Kenya, Madagascar, and they're seeing more churches being planted all the time. We partner with them because we want to see an Acts level of growth in the world as the gospel goes from our churches into cities and communities and sees the gospel spread and people saved and added. And the last thing I want to encourage you to do is to be on the lookout for opportunity. Whether it's opportunity to fill need or to tell people about Jesus, the church in Antioch were on the front foot when looking for gospel opportunity. And we should do the same. We should be on the front foot when we're looking for people to be saved. So let's be expectant, shall we? 
we've got the same news to share as the church in Antioch, okay? We come to the same God whose hand is on this church the same way it was on the church in Antioch. We should be excited to be caught up in God's great plan for the world. We're on mission together. Our life has a purpose as we tell the world who Jesus is and help to build his church. So pray for this church. Be expectant to see it grow and flourish. Come and get involved in community life. Together, let's go and see the gospel spread out from this building right across Paul and Bournemouth and further afield. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray, and then we're going to come back and worship. Oh, Father, I was so challenged and so encouraged reading the account of the church in Antioch to see them walking and, and spreading the gospel wherever they went to see a church that was flourishing and growing and seeing people coming to know you, growing to maturity. This was a church that was, that was growing. And Lord, I long to see the same here in Poole as well. Would you do it at Gateway Church in your name, Lord? We want to see this church grow. We want to see people who don't know you coming to believe in you as their Lord and Savior, being added to this church, worshiping alongside us. Lord, give us a problem as we run out of seats here. Give us a problem as so many people come into this building. Give us courage that we might go out and share the gospel with our friends and co-workers. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come in Paul. We want to see the gospel flourish in Paul and Bournemouth. Lord, please be with us as we continue to, to respond. In your name, amen.